Welcome to episode two of the Teaching That Counts podcast, a podcast where we have conversations with teachers, coaches, students about, well, about math and teaching math and math education. So this episode I'm really excited to share with you is our second discussion where we explore the book Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics by Peter Lillidal. This week we'll talk about chapters one, two, and three. Chapter one is on the types of tasks that we give students, thinking tasks. Chapter two is on how we build collaborative groups. And chapter three is on vertical non-permanent surfaces. I'm so excited to share with you what our teachers and um, ed techs talked about today. And I hope you enjoy. So here we go. Episode two of Teaching That Counts. Well, welcome everyone to this is um, our second book study, I guess second session of our book study for Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics um, by Peter Lillidal. So we're just going to go around really quick and introduce who's here with us today. And we're going to be talking about chapter one, two, and three. So once again, I'm Abel Maestas. I'm an instructional math coach here at Ceres Unified School District. I'm Sarah Mucha. I teach accelerated math two at Central Valley High School. I am Tucker Schorberg. I teach mathematics at Ceres High School. Uh, my name is Elvis Delgado. I teach at Ceres High School, Integrated Math 1 and Computer Science. I'm Diana Andrade, and I teach math at Argus High School. I'm Brian Wise. I'm one of the district's ed tech specialists, and once upon a time I was a high school science teacher, and I taught Algebra 1 in a couple of dire emergencies. And I'm Mariana Sandoval, and I'm also a district ed tech, and I also taught technology 6th through 12th grade, and um, that was at Whitmore Charter. Cool. Well, thank you, everyone, for, for uh, joining us today and um, looking into kind of diving deep into chapters 1, 2, and 3. So I'm, I'm really excited to be talking about it today. Um, so, so just to kind of we'll go ahead and just kind of start um what might have been let's first start with chapter one what are some things that maybe stuck out to you guys uh, as you were reading chapter one you want to start sure i will start um some of the things that i highlighted was like problem solving is what we do when we don't know what to do and um i thought that, that was really good that's really difficult for I feel like it's really hard to teach that. What do you do when you're stuck on something? Um, and I did, I do believe what they're saying about the non-curricular tasks and how you need to have those in order to have students access the curricular tasks better. I just don't know when you do that because reading it now, I'm like, well, I should have started the year doing that because you gotta go slow to move fast. But now I'm reading this halfway through the school year and I'm feeling like, do I take a pause and do I do these non-curricular tasks to open up, you know, um, their problem solving skills? Yeah, I had that exact same thing um, labeled. I, I even said, is this like a once of the, is this a once in the year thing? Do we do it more often? Or should you have done it in the beginning of the year? Like, should we take the first three days and do those non-curricular tasks to like get them going into the curriculum. So I had the same question and I think that's something we can kind of explore a little bit more of in what would work best um, 
I actually don't see any problem with just kind of stopping where you're at, doing those those few to get them going, and then get running into those not do those curricular tasks. I really like how they use that idea to emphasize natural engagement for students because they they said I mean that's just problem solving is natural like when you're posed a question that's that's engaging something that's relevant to you you want to go ahead and solve that and so really kind of setting up those those habits and those systems in your class with an engaging non-curricular task I think that kind of sparks you know just the tone and the mood of the class um, and I, I mean if, if when I'm gonna transition to this I envision at a semester point or even if I wanted to do it sooner I would say why not at the end of a unit just kind of just a natural changing gears place yeah that that brings up a good point too and like you know how do you kind of make the you know fill that into the culture of your class we talk a lot about culture and especially in terms of context in our framework that's really like setting up your culture in your class and I think if you set up that culture of thinking students are like know that that's how it's going to be um, so yeah you make a great point like you can do that end of unit beginning of unit beginning of semester you know doing curricular tasks and you kind of feel like that energy is lost maybe switch it up into an engagement non-curricular task just to kind of help spark that again re-energize them yeah the other thing they talked about a lot was the mimicking and that was so hard to read because I'm reading it thinking like, oh, but I'm doing this underneath the doc cam and I'm modeling how to note take. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm promoting mimicking so bad. Um, and I think that mimicking is okay for certain things. Like it, it says mimicking tends to create short-term success without the long-term learning that allows students to make connections with other topics in the same and subsequent grades. And I'm, I'm just noticing that, like even when they're talking about like, you know, students that mimic the homework, like everything, but we're told that our summative test and our CFAs, like the CFA, CFAs need to look like the summative. They should map on to those things. And so it's like, I feel like this is saying something a little different. I don't know. I just had mixed feelings. I guess it's, what do we want our students to be able to do? Do we want them to be able to mimic and copy what we want them to, to copy? Or do we want them to be at some point, take what we have and apply it to something different? Um, and I think that comes, some of it comes down to the way that we plan and structure that too, right? If we're planning so that students are doing exactly what we did, the example that, that I always kind of go towards is, you know, I used to do this a lot and give a, give a review right before a test that looks exactly like the test. Well, then I'm, I'm basically promoting mimicking. Like, I'm like, hey, I value mimicking because, look, if you do well in this review, then I value that you can do the same thing exactly the next day. And... I think students pick up on those things if we like that that's what we value as a teacher um, so how do we kind of start to change the message of what we value and that we value that students can do some of those thinking on their own and I think he mentions that I'm not sure I think it's in that that first chapter but 
I think there are certain things that students need to see that structure for and that organization. Like, for instance, note-taking is one of them. Otherwise, if you just kind of leave it up to the kiddos to, like, write down what they think is important, right? We, I think we've all tried that. They probably don't think any of it's important, so they don't write it down or they don't know how to. So I think that is important, and I believe he's going to get into note-taking later on in the book. Um, but I also think it goes back to um, maybe their overall, I don't want to say ability, but maybe the... Um, depending upon how much they are um, comfortable with the material or maybe they it's something brand new and it's they haven't seen it before i think at some point you might need to maybe put in a little more structures for them um, kind of like you know when you scaffold something that is really difficult for the students you try to ease them into certain things so i think it depends on that as well like how comfortable they are with jumping into where you're at. Because if you're taking something that is way above their level and you need to provide that access, those structures might have to come in at some point. I would have to agree with you because um, I was just looking at the FAQ in the book and I remember here, like reading something about that. And um, it, the question is, what is, is mimicking good? It's, well, the question is whether or not mimicking is good or bad. The question is, what is mimicking good or bad for? And then one of the things that it says is that um, it is good for example, um, teaching students how to replicate routines, kind of what you were talking about. And um, so it's so good that they start to have success with things uh, like that. And they give some examples here. And it says that um, the problem is that mimicking is only an effective strategy when the number of routines to memorize is small. I think that's the big like takeaway. Correct. Like, there's a you draw a line, and it's like once you start going past that line, then that's maybe when you need to not like move away from mimicking. So I think it's purposeful in different situations. When I read that. I immediately thought how, you know, we're, we're utilizing um, a new curriculum, and I immediately thought about the level of students that are struggling the most. And it seems to be happening at the, the math three, like junior level, because they're so used to mimicking. But you think about that, those types of problems in that course, it's, um, they're not, the, the number of, of uh, steps to let's say graph a rational function is not simply oh look at plot a couple of points and then draw a line between them you have to find the asymptotes and find the intercepts and then deal with simplification and there's so much more to that goes into it that um it's harder to i see how mimicking can be harder to put all the stuff together for a student uh, so I, I i can see how that that, that's just where my mind went right away was like, oh, I see that in math, in, in high school math, right? Or I'll say ninth grade. When we're graphing a line, that might be a lot quicker. I can use two points to graph a line. When I'm graphing a much more difficult function, that's, that's going to be a lot more steps to do. I agree with everything you guys said. Uh, I see that in my classroom every single time, especially when I'm teaching. Uh, my students will copy down everything that I write down. <laughs> 
but they have no clue what I, they just wrote down. And it's that struggle of then, like, I don't understand this because I just copied this and I really did not learn it. So how do I push away from that and let them really do the, the heavy lifting and struggling on their own and then try and figure out to connect those, those points at the end. I tend to start, when I start my year off, I tend to give kids, I, I tend to do better at that and give them at least one or two a week. Um, and then as the year goes on, it's like, okay, no, I gotta get busy and get through my curriculum and then I kind of uh, falter on that. But I just did, for instance, um, the would you rather have, have, I don't know if you've seen the cake problem cake A and split it with eight friends or cake B and split it with six friends. And um, it just, it was interesting because I was doing that at the same time that I was reading through this. And it was, uh, a lot of the kids were, basically it comes down to like area and figuring out which cake would have more and the bigger piece or the smaller piece. Again, no right or wrong answer. If they don't like cake, they could say the smaller one or whatever, right? So it kind of leaves it open, but they really struggled with where to start, and they were frustrated. And um, But I thought about what I had read and about the prior knowledge, so I kind of stopped. I'm like, okay, guys, let's think about what we know. Like, okay, well, what shape is this? It's a square. Okay, cool, awesome. What shape is this? You know, rectangle. So I think, you know, bringing them back and making them comfortable with, like, being able to access it um, I think is important too and also where it doesn't have a right or wrong answer where it can just be an opinion is important to get them to feel comfortable discussing and think and sharing I was really intrigued by the uh, card tricks and I actually watched a couple of the little video clips it really validated uh, back when I was in the classroom I, um, I taught probability a lot when I taught genetics. So even though I was a biology teacher for the most part, there's a lot of, and chemistry, there's a lot of math. So sometimes I felt like an honorary math teacher. And um, when I started a genetics unit, I would ha always have a, a couple of components to my lesson where they had to answer questions about rolling dice and drawing cards just so they could understand probability. And I, and I was kind of, I've always been intrigued by these psychological uh, gurus who tell us that the human brain is actually not designed very well to interpret probability in the real world. And like a classic example of that is the Monty Hall problem, if you're, if you're familiar with that. And uh, the, the, correct an the correct solution to the Monty Hall problem is very counterintuitive. And it's, um, um, so it, I think in a way it just kind of validates that it's okay to play some games. It's okay to dedicate some time out of your busy curriculum and your busy schedule to let your students have some fun. Um, and, you know, obviously we're not going to teach them how to count cards and, and gamble. Uh, although I did used to do that at grad night. I figured after they graduated, it was okay for me to teach them how to count cards playing blackjack at grad night. But, um, but seriously, uh, you know, there's certain students who they will see some connections. Um, and then you can even, if you want, you can even explain some of the formal mathematics behind the game that they're playing or the trick. Um, but I really liked how those card tricks, and he explicitly, rem uh, you know, didn't do card tricks that involved sleight of hand, you know, not that kind of card trick. These are all the kind of card tricks where you are doing some interesting things with the sequencing um, or, you know, memory, so to speak, like the deck has memory, uh, those kinds of card tricks. It's very, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a good way to get the kids excited about what they're learning. And I like, too, in the, the frequently asked questions sections, how 
you mentioned that you can do this with curricular tasks, but it it's harder, it takes longer, and only works well with a few students. Um, doing it in non-curricular tasks kind of is not familiar, and it changes that that behavior and gets them to activate their thinking rather than being the passive student that, that um, you know, they can normally be in a math class. So that's kind of why, you know, the non-curricular, it's just that whole change of setting and sequencing just immediately, you know, changes that, that mindset. We talked, I think um, Sarah mentioned going slow to go fast, and in, in the frequency questions part, he said, um, the script for factoring quadratics, for example, when using a fully implemented thinking classroom context, will cover the entire unit on factoring in 40 to 70 minutes. It's like, wow, what? Like we spend weeks and he can cover it in one day. And I thought that was, that was where the slow to go fast piece really came in. I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. So moving on to chapter two, so we talked about curricular tasks. Chapter two is about forming groups and how we get students to form collaborative groups in a thinking classroom, which I have to tell you the first, when I first read this, it absolutely kind of blew my mind because it was it it almost was counterintuitive than to what I had always thought about creating groups about strategically creating groups like using a method where I had a high to a mid and and all of those things just got kind of blown out of the water when he says visibly random groups like all the time every day um, so that was probably when I, if I was just to say something that really stuck out it was it was that i was like the whole thing was what um but since then i've had a chance to see it, it in implementation um with some teachers and they've had some pretty good success after the first week or two so uh it's pretty exciting this is one of the pieces i'm like well, i'm really excited about so i'd like to hear your thoughts on these so i actually did um random seating every day before covid i tried it for a whole year and i really did enjoy it and when i was reading this it brought back memories of how the class culture was a lot better because they actually all knew each other um even though like i teach accelerated and so those kids normally have the same classes and they travel together um, from class to class i still felt like there were some kids that didn't know each other um, because maybe they weren't in the pre-AP English class. They took regular, so they didn't know everyone. So now um, that I have that I did it, um, I do feel like the kids all knew each other. Um, the only thing that was kind of a pain was probably more for the subs because I didn't have a seating chart. And so when COVID happened, then it was like very difficult because I couldn't do that. I had to have contact tracing and stuff. Um, but I just had, I stood at the door with popsicle sticks. It had a letter and a number for which desk that they were supposed to be at. And they picked up an index card with their name on their way in. So that's how I took roll. Any index card that was left with the student's name, I knew that they were absent or I called out their name. Hey, you forgot your index card. Um, and I collected them after I took roll. So um, I really enjoyed it. I feel like they did too. And so um, it's something that I think I'll start back again second semester doing. Um, I, I like how they kind of talked about that, that fear, I guess, of, 
um, not working with, with your best friend. I guess if you're in a groups, you know, that are already structured and you're working together, um, you can kind of rely on, you know, problem solving tactics or relying on the smartest person or not thinking someone else is going to contribute um, frequently. But when you mix it up, you know, all of that goes out the window. And like Sarah said, you know, if you're getting to know someone, you don't really know they're high or low, or maybe someone's, you know, more willing to engage given a different personality dynamic. Um, so that, that can really bring out, you know, different, you know, learning qualities and thinking qualities um, in people. I started implementing actually this last Friday after I read this chapter. I was like, I can't wait. I got to do it. I got to jump into it and just do random selection with my students every day. So the way I do it is uh, I display my students' uh, image on Infinite Campus and I go to random seating and every day they get to see that the computer is selecting their seats so it's not me and it's not them. And some students are fighting back because they're not sitting with their friends, but sometimes they do get to sit next to their friends and they notice and they're not doing the work and then they say don't say they actually become more productive because they're not talking to each other, which is a really nice thing what I saw that when I saw that today. Um, I do get feedback from students like at least I'm I want to sit next to the smart kid. That's one of the things that kids want to say, like, well, how come I don't get to sit next to the smart kid? And now that they get to sit, they see how much work the smart kid is putting in to understand the material. They're like, oh, now I know why you have an A and I don't have the A. So there's a lot of dynamics going around at the same time. Uh, it does take some time. It's roughly taking about five minutes to get this class going, but I do have a routine. Uh, my classroom is set up with big tables of groups of six to eight students. So it is all about collaboration. So that's a big part of it. Yeah. I also liked that um, the like student, the reduced social stress that they showed both ends of the spectrum, like the student who didn't want to ask to join a group or is more reserved or shy, like this eliminated that social stress for them, as well as like the popular type student in class that has a lot of friends it was like oh i don't have to pick which friend to sit next to so i liked that um students were realizing that i did have issues like with how um you were saying students like some pushback or trying to swap popsicle sticks or things like that um but then once they realize oh this is happening every single day they they do fade away from that so i thought that was good uh, I had a struggle with my students uh, last month where they were in the front of the classroom. They're like, this is my seat. I'm going to be in the front the whole time. And now they get to be selected every single day. If they're in the front, they don't say anything because they know tomorrow is going to be a different seat. And they like that. They get to go either in the front or in the back without them really struggling. And some students say, I like that I got to be in the front today because I'm watching the screen. I'm just curious, thinking of the students that I have this year, I do have some students that every seating chart, I put them in the front because they have vision issues. So I feel like I'm going to have to be more prepared with my materials to have things printed out for those students to eliminate having them seated with the same people because, or even like your students that have 504s and they need special seating placement, like I'm that's the other thing that I'm not so sure about so the thing is I have them select in the front already so they have an assigned seat but they're always going to have a random classmate and as soon as they need to sit in a specific seating they also have a seat but every day they're going to have a new classmate sitting next to them I'm not fully transitioning I've I've, I've done some of this and I've, I have randomized before 
Um, but I have a like, default normal seating chart where students are. And when I'm doing an activity or I want to go into a problem solving task, um, I just use an electronic generator and I have um, a list of all of my students already loaded like on a Google Doc from every class and I just copy and paste it into the random generator. I get to pick how many um, you know groups I want and if any students are absent I can quickly delete their names. Um, and I, I really liked too how you know I think you said three right three is the magic number and so I just, you know, kind of do some modular arithmetic and figure out how many groups and then whatever group number they're assigned, they go to those locations on um, the whiteboards around the room. And so that's good too. And it allows me to quickly, you know, re-randomize. Like I, I had a lesson where they were doing related rates in AP Calculus and those are pretty meaty problems. So I randomized the first time and they got done with the first task and then they went back to their seats and said, whoa, 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 hold on, here we go again, and we're going to randomize again, and they got they got new group mates, you know, so that was pretty pretty cool. Yeah, that, that is pretty cool. Um, he randomized twice in, in a class. Um, I think all of the examples here, though, illustrate how you can really change the culture. You know, we talked about this in the chapter one, too, right? How do you start, start establishing a culture? The first chapter, the non-curricular task in the building the thinking classroom starts to build a culture of thinking. Randomized groups starts to build a culture of this is our this is our team. This is we're always going to be in a place. And I'm fascinated to hear that the complaints went down. Like I'm not complaining anymore. Which it also um, struck me here with the magic numbers three. I think in the next chapter, so we'll kind of just kind of transition here into chapter chapter um, three is where students work in the thinking classroom. Um, this one particularly is about VNPs, or vertical non-permanent surfaces. Um, years ago, before this book came out, before I became a coach, I had vertical non-permanent surfaces in my classroom. And I just, I think when I started doing it, it was because I wanted the students to have the feeling that I had in college when I was working with my study group outside of the class, because I know that in the lecture, it was like trying to keep up and trying to figure out what the professor was doing, but it was in the study group in the library where we had the whiteboard up and we were doing problems together that I really felt like I was learning the math. And so I wanted my students to have that feeling. And so when I was reading chapter three, I'm like, wow, this is it. This is what I was doing before and that's what I was hoping for. Um, but he, he really went into some really, I mean, he used more data than obviously I did. Um, I think one of the things that stuck out the most for me was the table where he compared the vertical whiteboards, the horizontal whiteboards, the vertical paper, the horizontal paper, and then working in their notebook. And um, the time to task, the time to notation, the time on task, and then the levels of, of student interest um, in different different pieces and I think what we'll do is in the folder we'll put uh, a picture we'll put this picture in there so if you're listening to the podcast and you want to take a look we'll put that in there so you can take a look at that but the biggest thing to me was the time on task that the vertical whiteboard had groups that were on task for more time than any of the other ones and then the other thing that was really shocking was the time to the first notation. How long it took them to actually start 
writing something. And that, that was such a huge difference. 20.3 seconds on the vertical whiteboard as opposed to 144 seconds for the vertical um, paper. And I was, so I was thinking about how, why was that? And I think it really had to do with students didn't want to be wrong on a vertical paper. It's can't erase it. But you can erase anything on a, on a non-permanent surface. So that was the thing that, the biggest thing that stuck out to me. And then I'd like to hear from you guys. What was, what was some, some cool stuff about this one? Yeah, this had me flashing back to, to um, my undergraduate days when I just remember having like three homework, uh, three homework problems, right, for a week. And you would turn it in and end up being like, eight pages long on, on paper. And I remember just trying to prove these, these theorems. This is probably real analysis I'm, I'm having PTSD from. Everyone has PTSD. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, or, or number theory. I mean, that was fun. But um, I just remember I'm wasting all this paper or I'm, I'm running out of erasers or this is just too much time. And so I went to the flea market and I found whiteboards and I bought whiteboards and I hung it up in my garage. And that's where I would do all of, all of my work. And it was just so easy to write what I thought because it just takes two seconds to erase it. And then once I had it all done, you know, then I would you know, translate it down to, to paper to submit. Um, but, and it's just something about using a, a Expo pen on a whiteboard just feels so much better than paper to pencil. I don't know if that's just a nerdy thing, but. Hey, it's what Sheldon Cooper did, right? On Big Bang Theory, he always had that whiteboard, yeah. right? He even put a wet, remember when they're planning, I don't know if you remember when they're planning their wedding, they all went on the whiteboard. <laughs> all went on the whiteboard. Remember too, from college, that I was thinking to the classrooms and look for a whiteboard and just go on and just keep working on my problems. But this year, actually, uh, I took the initiative, I don't know, Maybe I'm ahead of the book. I don't know if I can read the future, but I actually ended up buying some whiteboards for my students because I wanted students to just work within the within their groups and just make mistakes. And it's okay that I can just go by and be like, "Hey, this is wrong. Go back and work on it." And as each student uh, was supposed to get a different color marker, and they were supposed to work out the problem as a group. And if someone didn't know, it's like, "Hey, two minutes, you're up." Pass on the next student, and you see how much they knew as a group. And if they couldn't figure it out themselves, at least they're learning from a partner, and that was the idea. But that was more of a, uh, yeah, horizontal surface learning. And now we got to go vertical. So that's the other thing. And hopefully, I'll be getting new tables where we can go vertical. Since <laughs> we're gonna get a, um, what they call, kind of like uh, bar tables. Nice. Well, having taught AVID for 16 years, right, AVID, that one of the big components of AVID is the AVID tutorial, which, you know, includes the whiteboards and the students doing, um, presenting their problem and, and getting assistance with it from their group members. Um, so this is something I've done for a number of years in my math classroom, is having students up and working and doing work around the room. Um, I think... Tying it back to chapter two with the random randomized groups, I think together, like the randomized groups along with them being up, um, because I think we can all probably say we've randomized groups, if they're sitting, it's not as very effective. I mean, it, for a lot of them, just sitting there in a different group every day might not be effective as much as them being up so I think, like he says, doing the first three things together uh, is important, and I think that's 
I think I'm look, looking forward to doing that where they're up. My only question is um, in our new curriculum in Open Up, there's a lot of times where they're asked to do things on their own first and then work with someone else. So that will have to be modified a little bit if we want them to just start right off with working together. Yeah, I, I really liked um, the recommendation that they're all standing at the, at the whiteboard because I've used this before um, when I flipped my, my class. I would have students working on math problems, but they would all be seated near a whiteboard um, and someone would be up at the whiteboard and it was just very easy for the people sitting to just be talking to each other or not really engage with the person or if it was one of the few groups in the front um, you know they had a little bit more distance from the whiteboard so there was always just that natural disengagement so when they're all standing up and they're at the whiteboard it, it created much more engagement especially at those those front whiteboards where they're using um, you know the whiteboards in the front of the room and then to the the group of three um, with only one person holding the pen that was really really powerful too um, because I, I just found with three people they were much more willing to talk to each other I found groups where the person holding the pen you know didn't know what to write and they were talking to each other more than what I've experienced in the past um, and then I would I would go through the times too I like I said just every 20 minutes rotate the pen you know um, so so that was um, really cool yeah and I have if I if I can um, talk about something I saw you do in your class on some observation I was on and I thought it was so cool how you had that they were had that one person with the pen and then you had dice and you randomized who was next like okay who's gonna do this boom oh number three if you're number three now you have the dice I, I think I remember you doing that with some mm -hmm. students and so you kind of double randomize they were randomly in groups and then you randomize who was going to be at the board um, and I think that took some pressure. Well, it might have put some pressure on the kids, but also took the pressure off some kids. So I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Um, the other thing I was going to mention uh, to Diana's point about uh, Open Up is that Open Up is the curriculum, right? It's a curriculum that was done way before this book came out. So I think that integrating the ideas that are coming from this book into the curriculum means that we can change how some of those things are going and i think that as you get used to that curriculum you can make those shifts because mm -hmm. i saw that i think i read that too in here is i think it might have been with the task in the facts if not i read it or i listened to him say this but it, i think it was in the facts is like shouldn't the shouldn't there be times when the students do the stuff first and then go in it and he said no because what happens is you end up having um, you end up having inequity with it because now some kid that knew how to do it is coming into the group with a kid that didn't know how to do it, mm -hmm. and now you've got unequal an unequal footing. And I thought that was very interesting. I'm like, okay, so if I put them all in the group at once, go, then everyone is starting off with an equal footing on on the problem. So I thought that was very interesting, and I think that could be done in our curriculum we just have to say well even though it says that i'm going to try this and i i think that's perfectly fine i think that's actually a good idea i 
think that a lot of these things in here made sense with the whiteboards, like as far as from a teacher perspective, like, okay, I'm in the middle of the room. Now I can see all of their work at once. Um, also the hint about, you know, um, carrying a different color marker than your students. So you remember what you also like okay, put I, know, I, didn't think of that. Um, I thought that was great. And also the fact that it was, it was okay for other groups to look at other people's boards. Like, I feel like students are like, well, I can't really do that. That's copying or, or that teachers perceive that as copying. But it said no one, they didn't really witness anyone doing line for line. It was more to like gain information to then bring back to your group. So like, I thought that was um, powerful. I just, the only question I have is how do you do this with technology? Because like, for instance, I'm in a regressions unit. So I would love to have my students do things on whiteboards, but it doesn't really make sense because they're going to have to be on Desmos holding a Chromebook and like it's just not feasible. So I feel like this will work for most things, but when I have to incorporate technology to that extent, I don't know if it would work. I, I also thought that one, so with technology, you have one student with a Chromebook out of those three, only one Chromebook per three students. And I think I re had read this somewhere. It might have been later too. That Chromebook, they all kind of go, they all use that one Chromebook. And then I think it's just a matter of picking what goes up on the board, right? If you're doing a regression unit, obviously your scatter plot might not go up there, but you could put the, the linear regression model or the model of regression that you get, and then your work that you got to then make your prediction can go up on there and some explanation could go up on there. Um, and then they, when they explain, they can even go to the computer, the teacher's computer, and show how they put in the, the regression expression and then use it to do some explanation to the whole class. So I think there are ways um, to do that, but I know that, and I think that you guys would, would uh, agree, it's uh, one Chromebook for every three kids so that they're sharing that knowledge. I did want to say before we kind of start to move on, um, I have one more question for you guys. Uh, he does say, Peter Lillidal does say that all three of these should be used all at once, uh, all together. I think Diane had mentioned that. So my question for you is, how do you see this working? I, I know that you've talked about, some of you are already doing it, and you talked about what you might do to begin to start in the next semester. Do you see this as something that you'd want to start like, right away next semester or you even see this something that your teams could be doing um, soon? I think if I was to implement this, to me, at least where we're at now, it's November, I would naturally implement it at the start of the new semester. I think that's a, a great starting point for team building activities, culture building activities, and I think this goes really, really well um, you know, with those first couple of days. Uh, back. As far as doing it with the team, I know sometimes not all team members are, are receptive to, you know, to macro moves. Um, but however, I have seen when macro moves are made by one team member, if results are promising, the whole team is like, I'll give it a try, but I'm not sure it's going to work. And then it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Um, but, you know, kind of being that early adopter, that's just something something you go through. Yeah, I think I'll adopt um, these things. I think second semester would be ideal, so I could get some footing. But um, I th I think it's possible, and I 
I do plan on, I mean, I have the vertical whiteboards. I just feel like I don't have enough of them. I have to, like, how do I structure 32 kids, three to a group, make sure every kid has a board? Like, it's going to be challenging to find the space for it. I almost just want to do away with the desks and mm. they can sit on a carpet like they're in kindergarten mm. until we figure out the groups. I don't know. If only we could get rid of the furniture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would like to add to that. Um, the reason why I kind of jumped in right away is because it gives me time to kind of like pick the things that work and things that are not working. Mm -hmm. So when I start second semester, I'm like, okay, I know what kind of worked a little bit better and how to structure things around. Um, I know the space is limited in my classroom because the tables are big and you want to set kids in groups, but that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to. Maybe they can give me the gym so I can apply that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Gym for everyone. But I mean, that's really what I liked about the um, students standing at whiteboards is really you can kind of push your furniture in. You can kind of almost, you know, crowd the center of your room and free up space. If you don't have enough whiteboards, um, something that, that my site has done is bought whiteboard easels for teachers in bulk. Um, and that's kind of, you know, helped supplement the, the spots in my room that don't have whiteboards. So... Um, you know, whiteboards are all around the room, and the teacher can stand in the middle and kind of, you know, point out, you know, the think the thought process of, of each group. You know, compare and contrast their their work. All right. Well, that's awesome, guys. I cannot wait to see and hear back from you guys on how that goes. This was an awesome discussion about these three chapters, which I think are going to make significant difference for our kids uh, here and in your classroom. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see where we go. So thanks uh, all of you for coming and uh, we'll see you next time.